Whispering. Whispering Streets. And here is Betty Davis. Hello. Gentleman George Smith was walking down a country road with his hands in his pockets, pockets which were practically empty. But he was thinking of a suitcase which was stashed away in a safe place, waiting until it would be safe for him to retrieve it. And in the suitcase were thousands of dollars. Hmm, that last swindle was the biggest of all. I'm sure grateful for uranium. Wasn't half so easy to sell phony stocks to three country yokels until uranium came along. <laughs> oh, boy, I'd like to see some of their faces right now when they discover I skipped town. Yeah, let's see, I'll find a place to hang out for a couple of months. I'll dye my hair, put on horn rim specks, and go back and pick up the dough that's on deposit. And I'll go to Paris or Rio and live it up. <laughs> what difference does it make where I go as long as I'm in the money again? Gentleman George dug his hands more deeply into his pockets. He started to whistle and realized that his throat was dry. He rounded a curve in the road and stopped short. But there was a table at the road's edge with a white cloth over it. And on the table stood a pitcher of icy cold lemonade and some paper cups. A woman of 30, wearing dark glasses, was seated in back of it. George glanced at a small sign which read, Lemonade, ten cents a glass. Uh, lemonade. Hmm, that's just what the doctor ordered. The road's dusty. It certainly is. Shall I help myself? Well, take any cup. They're all the same. Oh, thanks. Oh, say, that's the best lemonade I've tasted since I can remember. <laughs> How's for more? Well, ten cents is ten cents. But don't gulp the second one down so fast. It'll make you feel queasy in the stomach. Well, I'll just take your advice. <laughs> say, you're some lemonade maker, miss. Oh, there's no trick to making lemonade. You should try my chocolate layer cake, my salt-rising bread. I'd like to sample both of them. You're quite a picture, miss, sitting there with a green lawn in back of you. A pretty white house in back of the green lawn. Is that your house? Yes. It was my father's before me and his father's before him. Don't suppose you take in borders? Well, I have taken in transients, but no steady borders. You see, the people hereabouts own their own homes. I'm a homeless old reprobate myself. You were... You don't live alone, do you? Oh. oh, yes, I do. Of course, I couldn't take you as a boarder unless somebody vouched for you. Oh, I have rather impressive credentials. I'm sure I could find someone in the neighborhood to vouch for me. Someone like our pastor or Dr. Selwyn or the bank president? Yes, perhaps. By the way, my name's George Smith. Oh? It's an undistinguished but solid name. I'm Opal Cummings. Opal? It's my birthstone. I was born in October. That's so? <laughs> well, now, Opal, I'll just go call on your bank president and see if we can discover an acquaintance. Oh, here's the money for your lemonade, Miss Cummings. Oh, thanks. But 
you only owe me 20 cents, Mr. Smith, and this is a quarter. Just a minute, and I'll give you some change. Weigh your finger that quarter and make change. I must say you're pretty wonderful. Then you've noticed. That you're blind. Mm. Yes. But I say again, you're pretty wonderful. In just a moment, Betty Davis will be back again. But first... From now on, the career serviceman can look forward to his two retirement checks at age 65. For upon completing the required number of years of service, he'll be drawing Social Security in addition to military retirement. That's because service in the armed forces now builds credit toward both military and Social Security retirement. This new Social Security coverage also means greater disability insurance, and expanded family survivor protection. Servicemen in their 50s or younger will need 10 years of Social Security coverage to qualify for retirement benefits. However, servicemen or women already in their 60s can qualify for Social Security retirement with less than 10 years of coverage. The exact amount of coverage time needed depends on your exact date of birth. Details on coverage time and benefit amounts can be found in Social Security pamphlets Available now in service libraries and reading rooms. Have you investigated your Social Security benefits? And now, back to our story with Betty Davis. When Gentleman George Swindler Deluxe, who made his money promoting phony stock sales, told Opal Cummings that she was pretty wonderful, he was sincere for perhaps the first time in his life. There was something about this blind woman that was very attractive. And of course, as George said to himself, It's the ideal place for me to hide away for a few weeks. She won't lose by it. I'll pay her well. But I've got to convince her. Uh, Miss Cummings? Yes? That bank president you mentioned. Arthur Wadley? Yes, yes. I understand he's quite a guy. Come to think of it, I have a letter to him right here in my wallet. Just take a slant at it, Miss Cummings. Well, I only read Braille. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. Well, then I'll just have to read it to you. It's, um, it's from a banker in Chicago, a pal of mine. To Arthur Wadley, Esquire. This will reintroduce you to my old friend, George Smith, whom you met at a dinner party in my home a couple of years ago. George has been working hard and needs a vacation. And I've suggested that he try to find a place to stay in your quiet town. I'm sure you can recommend a good boarding house. <laughs> ah, so you see, Miss Cummings, I am serious about looking for a place to board. Look, Mr. Smith, you can board at my house. But you'll have to pass one inspection. Annie will want to cross-examine you. Annie? Mm, she's my maid of all work. When my father died, he left me enough insurance to employ someone who'd look after me. I only sell lemonade and flowers and cookies to keep myself busy. Just follow me, Mr. Smith, and I'll introduce you to Annie. She's the real boss. Gentleman George Smith, alias several other names, followed the blind woman up the path to the pleasant white cottage. 
They crossed the porch and she opened a door and stepped into the house. And George followed her into something that might have been a stage set from a Victorian play. Antique furniture, faded chintz curtains, a grandfather clock. He stood in the center of a square hallway and all at once a door opened from somewhere in the middle distance and a wrinkled old woman came toward him and studied him with narrowed eyes. Well, who are you? I'll explain, Annie. This is Mr. George Smith and he's looking for a place to board and I suggested that he stay with us. After all, we have several vacant rooms. Where'd you find him, Miss Opal? Oh, well, now let me explain. I came down the road dusty and tired and saw your charming mistress seated at a table selling lemonade. Mm. Well, the table was like an oasis in a desert. The lemonade was nectar for the gods. It was, was it? <laughs> Miss Opal, you mean to say you take a stranger into our house with no references? You're looking for trouble. Oh, but he has references, Annie. He has an introduction to Arthur Wadley. And Mr. Wadley's the most important man in town. You see, Miss Annie, I dabble in finances myself. I've just finished a banking job, and, well, I need a rest. You don't look tired to me. Miss Opal, have you felt his face? Has she felt my face? Well, that's my way of seeing people, Mr. Smith. I can tell more about a man's character from feeling his face than most people can tell from looking at his face. You come a little closer, please. Will I come a little closer? <laughs> Step up, Mr. Smith, and let her feel your face. Unless, that is, you've got something to conceal. It was the acid test, and George knew that there was no help for it. He stepped close to the blind woman. He stood quietly, forcing himself to relax, while slim hands with long, sensitive fingers moved over his face, touching his nose, his brow, moving down his cheeks to his mouth and his chin. Opal's fingertips were soft, and yet they had authority. And her voice was soft, but it also had authority. You're very intelligent, Mr. Smith. You have a broad brow, the brow of a thinker. Your eyebrows are heavy, and they come quite close together. They speak of strength. Having me touch your cheek made you nervous. I could feel a little muscle twitching. Well, I'm going to admit something. You're the first woman who's touched my face since my mother died. That's it. You're not used to women. You're a bit shy of them, Mr. Smith. Well, what bachelor isn't? <laughs> your mouth is full and generous. And your chin is strong on the surface, but... Mr. Smith, are you afraid of something? What? Well, no, no, of course not. You're letting Annie's suspicions influence you. And good that she is, if you ask me. Hush, Annie. What are you afraid of, Mr. Smith? Well, once when I was a little chap, I ran away from home. I, I'd been punished for some childish misdemeanor. Just as it was getting dark, a stern policeman cornered me and wormed my name and address out of me and dragged me home. <laughs> I guess I've been afraid of the police ever since. <laughs> a likely story. Please, Annie. Of course, Miss Cummings, if you're not satisfied... It's all right, Mr. Smith. I'm quite satisfied. I think we'll rent him a room, Annie. <laughs> it's 
up to you, Miss Oper. Anyway, it'll give us a change of pace. Now, I'm not saying I trust him. I ain't saying I quite distrust him either, you understand. What better place for a man to hide than in the home of a blind woman? In the weeks that followed, George spent his time indoors. He had long talks with Opal about poetry and music, and for the first time that he could remember, he felt relaxed. But when he was alone with Annie, the talk didn't run to poetry and music, for Annie was still suspicious. Now, I'm not saying that you're a bad man, Mr. Smith, but I am saying you've taken Miss Opal for a ride. Something about your voice, the kind of a, a quality to it. You fooled her, and I've never seen her fooled before by a face. Now, if you're scared of the police, it isn't because you ran away when you was a little fella. It's because you've got good reason to be scared right now. Come, come, Annie. That's no way to talk. Now, me, I didn't have to feel your face. But I've seen it somewhere, as believe me, I have. And I'll remember where one of these days. <laughs> well, don't try too hard, Annie. Don't strain your mind, remember. Well, I won't strain my mind, Mr. Smith. My mind's strong. But, well, you know something? I sort of like you. But even so, I hate to see my Miss Opal took in. I don't blame you. I have a protective feeling toward her myself. I've only known her for a short while. Has she always been blind? Mm -hmm. Always, as far as I know. And the pity of it is, Mr. Smith, that you don't have to stay blind. What do you mean, Annie? Well, um, there was a doctor. Uh, his name's Jeffrey Curtis. Uh, well, he stopped here on his way to the coast for a couple of nights lodging. Uh, his car broke down, and they had to send away for a part. And uh, while he was waiting, uh, he examined Miss Opal's eyes, and he told me, in strict confidence, mind you, that there's a surgeon in New York City could bring back her sight. Then why in heaven's name doesn't she go to New York? Well, it's a question of money. She just has enough to get by on as it is, and she won't accept charity. Well, she could have it for the asking. In just a moment, Betty Davis will be back. Any enthusiastic receptions given to American ships arriving at Rhodes, Greece, should be chalked up to Howard S. Rosenberg, singing seaman aboard the cruiser Des Moines. Rosenberg made friends when he was invited to sing with the Rhodes Greek Orthodox Church Choir after praising their singing during a service. Though troubled a bit by the difference in language, Rosenberg was asked to sing the Ave Maria, which was broadcast over Rhodes Radio. After that, he was a regular member of the choir for the remainder of the Des Moines stay at Rhodes. Seaman Rosenberg's action gives us all a thought to remember. We are Americans. As we go, so goes America. And now, back to our story with Betty Davis. George Smith listened carefully as Annie told him about the operation which would give Opal her sight. And he found himself strangely disturbed. All the while he was listening, he was seeing a suitcase stuffed with money and stashed away in a safe place. 
He spoke softly. Seems a pity that she'd let money stand in her way. She isn't the only person in the world who's let money stand in the way of something, Mr. Smith. Some people let it stand between them and sight. Other folks let it stand between them and respectability. Other folks... We're not talking about other folks. We're talking about Miss Opal. I wish I could have a talk with you, Dr. Well, you'll get your chance, Mr. Smith. He's going to stop here on his way back from the coast. He's due tomorrow or the day after. And... What are you two gossiping about? Who said we was gossiping, Miss Opal? <laughs> well, that's just a figure of speech, Annie. Why are you wasting a beautiful evening sitting indoors, George? Come out onto the porch. It's as cool as cool, and the honeysuckle is sweeter than a dream come true. And it's all mixed with the scent of night-blooming roses. Pink roses, probably. Why pink roses? Pink? I like the sound of the word. Of course, to a person born blind like myself, pink hasn't any real significance. When I say the rose is pink, well, I know what a rose looks like. Because I can feel it. But I ask myself inwardly, what is pink? Long after he'd gone to bed and was supposed to be asleep, George Smith lay staring into the darkness. He'd never known a woman like Opal Cummings. The women he'd known had been ships, tramp schooners that passed in the night. But during his three weeks of refuge, he'd seen Opal at the organ in the parlor playing hymns. He'd watched her fingers moving swiftly across the pages of a book, more often than not, the Bible. He thought, I'll get out of here before that snoopy doctor from New York comes barging in. But when the doctor appeared late that afternoon, George was still in residence, and... May I speak with you, Dr. Curtis? I mean, privately? Uh, yes, indeed. I've been wanting to speak to you privately, as a matter of fact, since Miss Cummings introduced us. Well, I'd like to ask a question. I'd like to ask one. Well, you have first turn, Mr. Smith. Annie tells me that, according to you, Opal Cummings can be given sight. I'm quite sure of it. There's an eye surgeon on the staff of my hospital who's done miracles with her form of double cataract. It's a delicate job. And a costly one. And there's the rub. She won't accept money from anybody. I could put her through the clinic. She'd get off very cheap. But neither will she accept charity. So Annie told me. The fact of the matter is, Doctor, that I have some money lying around loose. Yes? If you could figure out a way to make her accept it. For instance, if she were given a reward. A reward? Yes. For capturing a man who's on the wanted list. You mean Gentleman George? So you know. I've seen posters in several towns with your face and your name on them. Well, then Opal can have the money she needs and... Wait, wait. She's fond of you. She wouldn't buy her sight with money that came from your capture. You'll have to think of a better way. If I could take a powder in the dead of the night, not any night, this night, and if you could meet me at a designated place, I could give you the money I swindled and you could return it and collect the reward. Go on. Well, Doctor, you could hold the reward, hold the money in escrow for several months, and then send it to Opal in my name. 
She wouldn't take it. She'll take it. I'll write a letter as soon as she's gone to bed and leave it on the hall table, telling her that the moment you saw me, you recognized in me the symptoms of an incurable disease. An incurable disease? Such as? Such as dishonesty, itchy fingers. But you won't have to know that. I'll tell her I'm going away for treatments, that my days are numbered, that on my death she'll receive a legacy through you, my executor, to be used for one and only one purpose. It won't be entirely a lie, Dr. Curtis. My days of freedom are numbered, you know. Yes, I think they are. Why are you doing this? I doubt that you'd understand, Dr. Curtis. And I think I would. There are many kinds of blindness. You've been attracted to a blind woman who's given you your own sight. I'll take you up on your proposition, Mr. Smith. The reward money will pay for Opal's operation. As for your own debt to society, let's say that you're making a down payment. impossible for a person to see the color of a rose, and there's a spiritual form that makes it impossible for another person to distinguish the difference between the true and the false. George Smith's spiritual blindness evaporated when he learned the meaning of love. But what of Dr. Jeffrey Curtis? Did spiritual blindness play a role in his life? Here again is Betty Davis. There was a form of blindness separating Dr. Curtis from the girl he loved. A strange antagonism that kept her from admitting that he was fine and honest and sincere and that he'd make her a good husband. You'll learn the reason for this unusual situation when you meet Dr. Curtis again. Until then, this is Betty Davis saying goodbye from the Whispering Streets. Today's program was written by Margaret E. Sangster. Featured in the cast were Jean Bates, George Neese, Gail Bonney, and Harry Bartell. Whispering Streets was directed by Gordon T. Hughes and produced by Ted Lloyd. Your announcer is Dan Coverley. Whispering Streets has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.